Bible reading this morning comes from Revelation chapter 6, starting at verse 15, working all the way through to the end of chapter 7. So Revelation chapter 6 starts with the opening of the seals and all the kind of judgment uh, that comes from that. Well, we're going to pick it up from verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel rising up from the east who had the seal of the living God he cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were allowed to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Judah. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Benjamin. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, Who are these people in white robes and where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. And then he told me, These are the ones coming Whoops. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the lamb of the 
in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to the springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Here ends the reading of the word today. Thanks, Roger. So I'm back in the saddle after a short break due to illness and just being lazy. Uh, And so I wanted to take this opportunity to thank Herman and Peter for jumping in for a few weeks while I was on leave. And so it is good to be back. And we're just at the end of our Garden to Garden City series. We've had Christmas and um, New Year's in the middle. And so I thought it would be a good idea to... Uh, to just ground ourselves in the big picture story that the Bible is telling where we are. Because without that, Revelation chapter 7 just doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, we've seen that the whole story of Scripture revolves around the the problem we found in Genesis 3. So God's created the world, he's made it very good, and then sin enters the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and they kind of break the world and they break their relationship with God. But the big problem is that God had made the world and his people so that he could walk and talk with them in the cool of the day. We were made to, and designed to be in a relationship with God. But because of sin, we are cast out of God's presence. And the whole story of Scripture, the golden thread that runs throughout the whole Bible is in essence an exploration of how this problem can be solved. How can God be with his people when God is pure and holy and righteous and and cannot be in the presence of sin and his people be sinful and broken and continually turn away from him? That's what the, the drama of scripture is all about. How do these things fit together? How can we be in God's presence without being consumed by the fire of his judgment? And so as the story of Scripture unfolds, the answer kind of gets answered slowly, uh, the, the question gets answered slowly over you know, a few thousand years. In Abram, we learn that, that the answer will come via the instrument of faith. In Moses, we learn that the solution will come from the nation of Israel. Through the book of Judges, we learn that it will ultimately be through one of Israel's kings. Through the history of Israel, we see that it will be through King David's line. Through the books of Kings and Chronicles, we see that all the human kings in Israel actually are inferior and broken, so it can't be one of them. They need a better king to be the king that is going to solve ultimately the problem. And part of this picture, never work with children and small animals. You go, you need to go. Yeah, go find her, she's in the cry room. Thank you. And part of the picture that's being built throughout the story is that purely human solutions cannot work. Every time we try, in and of themselves, we come up with a solution that fails to bridge the gap between us and God. And it ends disastrously. And even in Israel, 
The nation that was supposed to be this great arrow pointing to God ends up being a corrupt as the nations around them. And towards the end, Israel as a nation uh, is so far away from God that they end up offering their own children as sacrifices to Molech, this idol god who lived in Canaan. And so the question remains, how is it that God is going to be with his people if his people continually run away from him? And the answer that scripture ultimately gives us is that we need to be purified from our sin. We need a divine solution to deal with the consequences of sin because the consequence of sin is death. So to, to be able to stand up to the purification and also not die in the process, we need a divine solution. And then Jesus comes and he provides that solution. He is God with us, Emmanuel. He is fully human and so he can stand in our place and he can live the perfect life. And he is fully God so he can take the outpouring of God's wrath and his cleansing fire without being consumed. He will live. And so every person who has faith, who believes and trusts in Christ, is transferred from eternal death into eternal life in Christ. And we go on living forever, being eternally cleansed through him. And that's where we're up to. And that's all good and well as far as the individual believer is concerned. But what about the rest of the world? If it's true that all of creation groans under the weight of sin, what will happen when God ultimately comes in the judgment day? If all of the world is broken and groaning on sin, how is that going to, fix, uh, to be fixed? Well, this book of Revelation gives us the answer. God is going to remake the world through judging it. And in the chapter just before this one, chapter 6, this starts to happen. Jesus comes, he opens the scroll, the seals of judgment, and with each seal being opened, another part of the world comes under his judgment and is destroyed. Seal 1 is a military conqueror who comes to defeat the powers of the world. Seal 2 is the red rider who takes peace from the earth and allows the people to slaughter one another through war and, and, and murder. Seal number three is the black rider and great famine enters the earth. And seal four is the green rider and his horse and death and Hades descend upon the earth. Seal five is that those martyred for their faith cry out for God saying, How long, O Lord? Which is what we're saying. And they're crying for God to judge the world. And in seal six there's an earthquake, the sun turns black, the stars start falling from the sky, the heavens are torn asunder, and in the midst of this, the kings, the powerful, the nobles and the generals, all the powerful people in the world, as well as the slaves, the poor and everyone else, they flee into the caves, they try and find shelter. God had come into the world to judge it, and no one can stand. And so the question hangs in the air, what will happen to us? On that great day of judgment, what will happen to humanity? Where will we be? Who can stand in the day of the Lord? Chapter 7 gives us the answer. Those that stand on the day of the Lord is those that have been sealed and protected by the Lamb. And so we're going to, let's ask the question, who are these people that are sealed and protected by the Lamb? Because chapter 7 starts reciting a list of all those who've, who've been sealed. It's the 144,000. Now, I have to admit, 
That exactly who makes up this 144,000 is a topic of great debate that's been raging for, you know, a few hundred years. Some people believe it is a literal 144,000, that it is God's especially appointed and anointed saints, those, those who are extremely righteous on this earth, they, they kind of make it in. This is uh, the view that, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses hold. Um, if you, uh, if you are a Mormon, they believe that um, it's the extremely righteous people are the 144,000 who kind of get to sit closest to the throne in, in heaven. But both of those views, I think, are wrong. Some people believe that it's a special group of Jewish believers that are the physical Israel who'd come to faith in Christ. Some believe that it's a, um, an army of 144,000 believers who will come to carry out God's justice on earth. But I, I, I don't think any of these views are actually right. I think it's really the, the most logical way for us to understand this is that it is a symbolic representation of all the believers, both Jew and Gentile, who had come to faith. In the Bible, and particularly in Revelation, numbers have a symbolic significance. And in this case, it's um, 12,000 of each of the 12,000 people of God. So it's the full number of all those that are saved. Now, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, the people of God, Israel, are the true Israel. So it's not just God's Jewish people, it's those that have come to faith in Christ. And so I think it makes most sense for us to understand that the people who can stand in the judgment are those that trust in Christ. And there are some strange bits and pieces in the, um, in the list that we've read. For example, the tribe of Dan is missing, uh, Judah goes first, and these are all very interesting things to explore and we don't really have good answers necessarily for that. But in the end, what we need to understand, what's most important to take away here, is that when God comes to judge the world, he comes with, uh, with a purifying fire against sin. And the only way to stand is if you are part of God's people. But there's great hope in that for us. Because whatever happens in this life, or whatever happens when the judgment comes, God has specifically marked out his people. He has given us a stamp that says, you are mine. No, nothing will touch you, even when I come to judge the living and the dead. God has marked us. He's given us a label that beats every other label that, that the world can give us. And he says, you are mine. And because you are mine, you have my protection. And that means we don't actually have to worry about what other people call us because God has said, you are my child. It means we don't have to worry about the world thinks about us because we are God's children. We don't have to worry about not feeling like we belong because God has reached down and given us a mark that says, you belong to me, you are my adopted son, my adopted daughter, and without my seal, you cannot stand in the day of judgment. But he has given that to us. We are his people, his treasured possessions. And he loved us so much that he gave himself even unto death so that he could stamp that seal of approval on us. And he gives us protection in the day to come. 
And that's not because we deserved it, not because we were the most righteous of all the Christians in the world, but because he died on the cross to take that punishment for us. He's already taken the wrath on himself and he died in us in our place. And so the destruction that rains down on Revelation uh, is really actually meant for us, for all, for all people who have sinned. But because we trust in Christ and because he died for us, Jesus has already taken that death, that destruction, and he's standard in our place. Uh, st- stood in our place, standard. He stood in our place. So we don't have to worry because we will stand in Christ on the day to come. And that's the first thing we need to see. But there are two, uh, there's one other thing that we need to wrestle with. Because it's not just people who look like us who will stand on that day. It is people from every nation and every tongue. Revelation 7 verse 9. After this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes and they had palm branches in their hand. Now I think this is the same group of people as the 144,000. There's this great multitude. It's just another vision of all the people that God had saved. Uh, God had saved um, people from every nation. He's grafted people from every nation into the true Israel. And now there's this vast multitude from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, which no one can number. If you've been following along with Scripture, what God is doing here is he's saying that promise he made back to Abraham that every nation would be blessed through him has finally come to fruition. Here, people from every nation are there around the throne worshipping Christ. Every people, every tongue. We come to worship the King together. And that changes the way and challenges, the, uh, ch- challenges us in two significant ways. If it's people from every nation and every language and every tongue, then really there is no place for racial divides within the church. We are all sinners. There is no longer slave or free, Jew or Gentile, white, black, brown, yellow, red, it doesn't really matter because we are all sinners before God. We are all washed by the same blood of Christ and we are all equal before the throne. And when Jesus leaves the earth after his resurrection, he gives the church one job. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, all nations. So we have a global responsibility to carry the word of God, the gospel of Christ, around the world. We can't keep it to ourselves. It doesn't belong to us. The church has a global responsibility to spread the word. Now, if you live in Australia, we're pretty lucky because most of the world already lives here. But the church has no room for discrimination based on race or colour or nation or, or place of origin. All believers are brothers and sisters joined by the blood of Christ. And so we must take that uh, truth from from this passage. We have to understand that. And I think probably most of us living here would say, Amen, yea, and verily. That's true. We would agree with that, wouldn't we? We would heartily agree that people of every colour and nation are are welcome and, and are of equal value because we're all made in the image of God and all humans have inherent dignity. We would say, yes, that's true, wouldn't we? But I think... 
we need to also realize that it's people from every nation, every land, and every people, and every tongue. It's not just a, a kind of a bland, beige-colored person who is going to be there in the kingdom. It's not people from the same global tongue, from the same global nation. There's actual diversity and praise before Jesus' throne. In Revelation 21, verse 24, we actually see this most clearly. It says, so this is when, when the people come into the kingdom, ultimately, walking into heaven after all the, all the bad stuff's been taken out. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory or their cultural treasures into heaven. There will be different people groups in heaven. The kings of the earth will bring their glory, which is, I think, another way of, of talking about the cultural treasures of their particular nations into the future kingdom. But even if we don't understand this as, the, as specific cultural treasures, we have to admit that at least this verse tells us that the glory of the nations as nations will be in heaven. The things which make those nations glorious as nations will be there nationally unique. The things that make a nation good and beautiful and different is going to be there before Jesus in heaven. And I think this goes directly against what most of our society is trying to do today. You know, our people will say, yes, it's good and true and right that we say that there's no difference between the value of people uh, from different nations and places. But we don't necessarily say that it's good and right to be as white as you can be to the glory of God or as Kenyan as you can be to the glory of God or as male as you can be to the glory of God or as female as you can be to the glory of God. And part of the reason for that is because we, we've mixed sort of imperial colonialism with the message of Christianity in the past and so the world is now rejecting the colonial imperialism and all of faith that goes along with that. We used to say that being a Christian and trusting in Jesus goes hand in hand with dressing up in a Victorian suit and a tie and going to a church that looks exactly like the chapel back in Mother England. And the church got that wrong. Making nations follow Christ does not mean making nations Western. And so we have this heritage where evangelism has gone hand in hand with colonialism and there's a problem with that. But in reaction to that, our world has said all that is white and European in culture should go. And Christianity should be rejected as part of that. And our world magnifies traditional cultures instead, glorifies traditional religion instead. And in many places the world pretends that there is no difference between things that are actually different. We've tried to ignore the difference in gender and nationality. But the answer is not to take European culture and force it on the world, nor is it to reject Christianity and, and, and raise up traditional culture instead. The biblical picture is that Christ will redeem every nation, every tongue, as a nation. And to be the greatest and best version of that culture you can be to the glory of God. 
the most God-glorifying Kenyan you can be, the most Christ-exalting Inuit you can be, that's what the picture in Revelation is. But to do so in unity to the glory of God. Biblically speaking, it is very possible and right, actually, to be united in extreme and glorious difference because we are glorifying and singing glory to the Lamb. Our glory doesn't exist in our difference. It's by giving glory to Christ. We are saved by the same Jesus. We are, we are brothers and sisters of the same Father. We have the same King. We are in the same family and we're supposed to be focused on the same Lamb. Every nation, every tongue, every people giving glory to God. And that's the picture of Revelation 7. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have made us different because there is beauty in difference. Male and female, you created us, but in the image of God, you have created us. And we praise you, Lord, that you have brought us together around the Lamb, around King Jesus, whom we love, whom we want to serve, and whom we wish to glorify. And as we think of our individual callings, both as people but as nations too, we pray that you will help us to give you the glory, to not focus on our difference, but to praise you for the way that you have made us. We thank you for all things that you do for us, and we praise you for all that you've given us, even this day, as we've been able to come and sit under your word and celebrate new people wishing to serve you in this congregation. Also a new baptism. What a blessing it is to be your people, united by your blood. And we praise you for all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.